So why don't you go ahead and tell my listeners who you are? Hi, everyone. Uh, King Williams, I am a filmmaker and journalist based out of Atlanta, Georgia. I have a documentary called The Atlanta Way that will be out later on this year. I'm also writing a book on the history of street art in Atlanta for the arts organization Living Walls that will also be out in the fall of this year. So you may know me from one of those two things, or you may also know me for Twitter in particular, where I just talk about a lot of things to a lot of people. So that's pretty much where you would know me from, and that's who I am. I was amazed to find out that we actually went to school um, essentially together. I don't know that we knew each other uh, while we were in school, but (laughs) I was amazed to discover we went to school pretty much around the same time. Yeah, Um, I was actually surprised too. Yeah. Yeah, well, so you wanted to ask me, well, what, in your own words, what did you want to ask me? Well, uh, it's, it's an open question to basically anyway. I just put out on Twitter yesterday, I just was saying, hey, what's going on in the world of white people? Uh, I know that's a very weird question to say, um, <laughs> but it was just like I was seeing a lot of things, not just, I want to be clear, it wasn't just online. Um, it's seeing things in real life of people in particular who are just really, I'm actually thinking directly about an incident at Walmart. I just happened to see where a woman, this white woman, she's probably like in her 50s or 60s, really just freak out in her car. I mean, she's hitting the steering wheel. She's angry. She's like pointing fingers to the guy, another white guy, just like crossed in the parking lot. And I was like, you know, I've never seen that kind of rage from a woman, um, like for no reason at the same, cause it could be because I'm at Walmart. Walmart typically has its own level of, of things, but, and I kept seeing it, just different places, people either getting super angry, super freaked out, or condescending other customers, people who obviously don't know each other, and I was like, you know what, let me just ask, you know, it's not well put together as a question, but I was like, I'll just ask on Twitter, and I'll figure out from there on, like, what's going on, so that's and how I, we end up talking now. And I happen to just see you, and I happen to know you from a podcast, and thank you for uh answering some questions I had about podcasting before I started and I I thought I'm glad it's working out for you I thought you know why not why not you know we can do a cross promotion thing so what is going on with white people that was it it's pretty clumsy as a question I admit but that's just where I was coming from well I'll I'll tell you I kind of wonder if there's certain people that kind of realize like everything they've been taught is either being called into question or just isn't valid anymore you know you know what i mean like like and not just not just like what you learned in school but but kind of like um you know like what you what you just know the things like that you just know you know what i'm saying like I'll give you an example. I'll give you a classic example of what I'm talking about. Um, when I was a child, and I'm sure when you were a child, because for the purposes of this statement, we're about the same age. Right. When I was a child, I was taught when somebody when somebody calls, Ben, you answer the phone and you say, hello, how may I help you? Or whatever, right? Right. And now you have to almost say, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> like McDonald's you know, like, customer service or something. 
Like, you, you can't say yes over the phone to a stranger. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, because yeah. they'll turn that into something. Like, you'll you'll be on the hook for some tractors in Iowa or something. This is true. <laughs> you know? Or very true. I'm with you, man. I see. I see a lot of a lot of extremes. Either a lot of upset people, or a lot of very peaceful people. Yeah, you I know? know exactly what you mean. It's weird. You would think. You know, being in a global pandemic, I'd be freaking out all the time, but it's really peaceful. I'll, I did want to talk a little bit about my podcast with you because I'm, I don't hey, know if I'm you've heard any. Show, so, like, I'm, I'm, I'm a guest for you. I did want to talk about my podcast with you because you'll, you'll probably find that your, your listeners will probably find this interesting. Um, there's, there's a lot of, um, similarities between 1918 and today in terms of how the coronavirus and the Spanish flu are, uh, are basically like, okay, for example, 25 million people. Well, there are 25 million, what they call sanctified Spanish flu deaths. Okay. Now let me tell you what that is. Okay. That's where a, you died and you died in the vicinity of a doctor who thought you could have died from the Spanish flu, right? Right. Now, you want to talk about racism. In 1918, they thought doctors, right, doctors thought black people and white people were two biologically separate beings. And not only that, but Irish people and German people, et cetera, and so on, right? So you could be in a town where there was a doctor who thought that black people couldn't get the Spanish flu, right? And so, therefore, you died of the cold, right? There was a lot of that, a whole lot of that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, there was a whole lot of that. And one of the reasons I started covering COVID-19 in my podcast that was going to be a straight-up history podcast was the president. I was watching a a press conference, and the president actually said something that sounded exactly like something Woodrow Wilson would have said. Oh, gosh. Exactly. (laughs) And I thought, (laughs) well, essentially, so I need to, I need to, I have a political science background in addition to a history background. So I need to back up for a second and tell you, a little bit about the political theory of our president, okay? President Trump is a unique creature in American politics. There's something called an Ed Koch Democrat. Do you know – you've heard of Ed Koch? Maybe not? I Maybe. do, yeah. I got a lot of family in New York, so I definitely have. Okay. So Ed Koch was somebody – he was a new dealer – but he hated brown and black people, right? Yeah. He hated immigrants, and he hated basically non-white immigrants. He just couldn't stand. And he figured, I mean, he essentially decided who was white and who wasn't, essentially. But so that's an Ed Koch Democrat for you. Okay. So that's what the Republican Party has become. 
So for Donald Trump to stand up there and say only black people can get the coronavirus, I think that's exactly what he said. I don't remember exactly, but he said something around that. Okay? And I thought, oh, no. See, that's not even biologically real. Like, scientifically real. (laughs) Right. What? At this point, whatever he says, I'm just like, okay. Like, just okay. Well, exactly. And right. But I have family that I'm trying to keep alive. Yeah. (laughs) So, but, um, so that's why I started doing the COVID-19, um, was because of that. And, um, but so I, I saw this number that is crazy. 500 million people died either from the Spanish flu or because of it. That's one number. Yeah. But the reality is nobody really knows, honestly. Nobody honestly knows how many people died of it. Yeah. But, so did you have any, uh, other questions like what's up with white people or anything about my podcast or anything? Well, you know what? I wish I would have like actually had some real structured questions, but that would be the thing. Actually, if we could now, since we're here, we can just go through a few things. So one, I'm actually glad you did the podcast. I remember when we talked about it and, uh, you know, I knew you were considering, so I'm glad you actually went forward with your own episode, what, 14 or so now? Oh no, no, sir. I'm, uh, this will be over this phone will be episode 35. Okay, you, yeah, you've uh, gotten way farther ahead than I thought. Okay, so I'm glad you did it. <laughs> um, yeah, and believe it or not, it's one. At one point, it was one of the most downloaded podcasts in the world. Um, the fact there, there's other fun facts. I mean, for a big long stretch, there, there's one. There was at least one person listening to it somewhere in the world, um, which is amazing. I, I like that, man. I really do. I like that. No, it's, good to see growth. It's uh, it's the most humbling thing I've ever done, honestly. I gotta be honest with you. Okay, what's made you stay with the podcast? So, I love history, honestly. Everything from, for example, I, I learned about, or I, I didn't learn about it. I read about it. I read about the Tulsa, I guess, the bombings. In yeah. Tulsa, years and years ago, I'm um, I'm actually stunned that there are people who don't know that because I I mean I learned about that when I was I think in eighth grade. I mean I read about it or something. But yeah. you know I've no. been I mean a lot of people haven't. Yeah. Right. Right. Um. But yeah, I just love history, and um, the reason I did the flu, the Spanish flu, was I was went to the doctor, and my like my nurse was all like, uh, "Oh yeah, there's a there's COVID nineteen." I was like, "What's that?" You know, this is back December, November ish. <laughs> you know, yeah. And then I remembered the Spanish flu, and what was amazing to me is the similarity are just shocking, honestly. But Yeah, like what is it like what do you mean by like what the similarities will be? Oh my God. Um, okay. So you had all during the flu, you had people who thought, you know, 
Okay, like in Boston, okay, in Boston, right? The head of the Boston of the Boston Board of Health or whatever you actually call it did not think black people could or no, he thought only black people could catch the Spanish flu. As a consequence of that, he was I mean, Boston was laid low by the flu. Uh, and he actually died. He actually died from it. Um, and then, like the the guy who was in charge of what became the National Institutes of Health, which at that time was a naval installation, uh, essentially raised his hand and said, "Okay, we're going to handle, uh, like we're going to start treating Boston from now on." Thank you. <laughs> like, thank me later. Um, okay. another crazy example is like um san francisco okay this is scary san francisco was laid low by something yet and still only five thousand people actually died of the spanish flu but if you read letters and diaries and just you know my boyfriend disappeared and her boyfriend disappeared and they couldn't make phone calls and fires were endemic trash didn't get picked up i mean chinatown was deserted but they thought the chinese couldn't get it stuff like that i mean crazy stuff um also lots of people thought it was a weapon of war interesting <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what's going through their mind and make them think like it's an instrument for war. It was a well because World War One was happening right right at the same time, so they thought it was a weapon of war. And actually, I'll tell you the craziest thing about Spanish flu that if I had done this podcast a year ago, would not have been crazy to me. It went away. It literally just went away. There was no uh, cure. There was no treatment that worked, really. It just disappeared. <laughs> you know? It just vanished. For like two or three years. That's crazy. But And that kind of worries me about coronavirus, is that we're not going to ever have a real treatment for it. I thought about that, too. I'm like, man, what if we just have to live with this? Exactly. And what would that look like? What do you think that would look like, honestly? Uh, it's interesting. I think that the U.S. is so different because of where we are currently. Um, let's say it's, what is it, what, how, ooh, I don't know, say January the 20-something, late, late 20s, 2020. Let's say we don't get that vaccine until, like, 2022 or 2023. I think right. we're going to have three things kind of pop off. Um, the first would be, one, like, the the role of deniers will just probably, like, exponentially increase by, like, a factor of, like, at least two. Um, and then you'll probably also, on another end, see this real fundamental change for people who really, really are overprotective and essentially, like, over-sanitizing everything because of the first group of people who just don't do that. I think that'll probably continue. Uh, I also think, too, science is about to take an L across the board because 
at this point, if anyone gets has anything wrong or any of the medicine doesn't work out or whatever, they're in a lose-lose situation. So I think science is going to be under siege alongside the rest of, like, generalized education. So that's what I'm saying, or at least I think. One of the things I'm looking at, I've got my eye on this. I, You know, I'm amazed how many friends of mine actually work from home now. Like, you well, know what I'm saying? Everybody. Yeah, that, was, that should be like everybody but right now. Oh. It's amazing how many people are. And the thing I'm wondering is, at some point, because if you think about it, renting a like renting an office, that's an expense. You know, at some point, these companies are going to figure this out. I think they're going to be ones to actually get us out of the pandemic versus like the political establishment. I think it'll just be the private market who just sets the tone. Like, all right, we, we're going to use sanitizer, we're going to social distance, we're going to put our foot firm on it. So I agree with you. Mm-hmm. And I actually think it's going to be like we're the legacy of this is we're going to be on our own. Like, I really think that's what it's going to be. You know? I do, actually. Like, that's actually one of the things I look at. So, I'm deep history fascinates me. And one of the things that I look at, one of the haunting similarities I look at between the U.S. and, say, the Roman Empire is, like, at some point, the powers that be in the Roman Empire, like, sat around basically and thought, why are we paying taxes? You know, like, why are we paying taxes? What is the deal? And I wonder if we're going to get to that point. I wonder if this goes on for more than a few years, more than a couple of years or whatever. I wonder if people are going to sit around, you know, states are going to think, why Why do we give this money to Washington? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, seriously. I'm just saying. I would say be glad. I mean, I would say be glad. Don't be sad about anything. What'd you say? I didn't hear that. I would say don't be sad. Just get glad about the little things because right now everything's hey. a little stupid. But it gets exactly. Better. Exactly. Be be happy for the little things in life, like the yeah. little the little things you have. Yeah, exactly. I think it's just important for that. So. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And so that actually brought me to something in particular, the little things. The other reason I brought up the issue is what's going on with white people is that um, I've especially just been, like, going through Twitter and people's Facebook pages just to see where they are, not even, like, on the judgment side, and this is something I'm just going to bring to you, is how do you yourself see the world, and how do you feel as if other white people see the world? How do I see the world in general or, like, yeah, right now like or how? Like, like, no, just a general statement. I see the world, I, personally, I hope that what the, I hope that we all realize that you're no better off than your neighbor. Like, you're no, you know what I'm saying? Like, you're no healthier, you're no better off than your neighbor, right? 
Um, that's what I hope. Um, but I also kind of think, like I'm with you. I look at some of these people on on Facebook, and I'm just like, especially on Twitter, and I'm just like, I don't know what's going on. Like psychologically, emotionally, with some of these people, are is it performative? Are they are they performing for like their side, or or is this real? And if this is real, then we have a problem. And it's not it's not a political problem, it's a it's a I don't know. <laughs> like you know, like I think some people are going crazy, honestly. Like some people I really think because I saw this video of this man of a of a white fella and all that was happening was somebody asked him, like some Walmart employee asked him, Can you put on a mask? And he like flipped out, and he starts turning stuff over. And I'm like, how hard is it to put on a mask? <laughs> yeah, like, you know, like, yeah, the masking has been interesting too. And actually, there's a guy that I want to do a podcast with, an episode with, and he actually, I'm gonna put words in his mouth here, but he actually said something to the fact of that some white Christians believe that the mask is something on the way to the mark of the beast or something. I'm not exactly sure. I really put words in his mouth right there, so he's going to come on my podcast and he has to explain that. No, it's a lot of people are like, this is the end times, and, you know, we got to be careful and diligent. And I'm just like, I don't have the mental bandwidth or, like, the expertise to fully get into like end time theology, you know, you gotta know your limitation. But I've like I've noticed that like I'm like Yes, statues are coming down, right? But are we are right. we serious in two thousand eleven? Because I feel like those people will probably have legit reasons to feel like the world is coming down for them because in a lot of ways it did. Um are we well, back in two thousand three or two thousand four? You know, I mean yes, things aren't right. great and kids are taking out statues and people protesting every night. But to go to like the end of like the world, that's a that's a huge leap. Well, the thing I thought, I, I had this thought. Now, now remember that I've studied Roman history and all this, and I, I was sitting out on my basically my front area out of the house, right? And I live at the top of a hill, and it was right when the pandemic. It's basically right when people were starting to realize. They had they couldn't go out all the time and had to had to be at home basically. I think yeah. maybe the governor put in an order or something. And I was sitting out on this bench and I'm looking at these people walk around, all these neighbors that I'd never seen before. You know? You know what I'm saying? And they're yeah, all walking on down the road, up the up the road, down the road. And I really thought I promise you, I really thought. I would have thought the end of an empire would have been a lot less peaceful than now. Right? And that's when I when it first hit me. Like this is a test. You know, maybe the world's not going to crack open and and you know, Satan's not going to come out or whatever, but this is a test of our of our country. It's a test of our healthcare system. You know? This is true. It, 
and I, it's like I really thought, I never thought about it like that before. <laughs> you know? Nah, I mean, I'm with you. I felt the same. I was just like, what if this is just like a run up to something actually big? And I was like, we probably failed on every measure. Like, pretty horribly. Well, how do you mean fail? Well, in the sense of like, uh, this is something we haven't talked, but like, let's say if a natural disaster happens or the one thing that was interesting in the early part of the pandemic here in the U.S. was that like the number of people who were hoarding like just basic stuff like toilet paper or people who were buying up all the milk or people who tried, who bought all of the, the sanitary equipment, which is why we're in the situation we're in now. And then people didn't have it. Like, I'm like, we have failed spectacularly right. on something that was, and this was like in the early days of the pandemic where we really could have like, Lockdown. Everyone could have had resources to do basic things. We're talking about resource intensive. That normal dollar. Yeah, like stuff like that. Not even what? like critical things. It was like, how did we fail this far? Like it was like it was pretty yeah. easy. One of the craziest, I guess, like one of the one of the weirdest things that happened early in the pandemic for me was, okay, I have to buy toilet paper, and okay. I'd rather not go out and get it for obvious reasons. Okay. So, so I go on, uh, I think it was like Target. Go on Target. And they're like, well, we'll sell you toilet paper, but you have to come here and pick it up. But, now here's the wrinkle. You have to show us your driver's license and we'll only sell it to you if you live within so many miles of the store. I'm like, okay. Now, then I go on Amazon, and I'm not lying at all. This is America in the U.S. of A. I spent seven hours trying to buy toilet paper. And yeah. what would happen would be like I would I'm, – I'm assuming you bought something on Amazon in your life. What would happen would be I would tap it, and it would move to the cart. And in the moment – in like the split second of time that it would be in the cart, like it would it would it would leave the cart before I could pay for it. And then I would get I think I bought let me I'm gonna say maybe five separate orders of toilet paper that actually made it out of the checkout into my email that this is coming to you, that I got five or four separate emails saying that this company went out of business, right? And one email saying, well, actually, this is weird. Actually, sir, what happened was your toilet paper you, you had bought was going to come from Pennsylvania, but they went out of business. But don't worry, we we shipped it from China, except at some point between the Port of Los Angeles and we think Colorado – your toilet paper was stolen off a truck. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like <laughs> But I just thought where am I now? <laughs> yeah. How is it how is this America? <laughs> like I that that's been a lot. So I just, I was just like, yeah, it was that. So I'm like, the last six or eight months, 
I honestly, I don't think anybody expected us to be where we are as like a people in America six months ago. I'm pretty sure January was it 25th. Nobody expected any of this to happen, but it's a really weird world to see how much people have either changed or finally letting out their inner feelings um, over the last six months, especially the last two, I think have been real telling. Um, so it's been an interesting kind of. I worry about I worry about September. I really worry about that. What happens in September for you? Like the kids, the kids coming oh, yeah. going back to school. Because you know coronavirus runs crazy in an air conditioning setup. Like you know that. Yeah, I thought about. It. I was like, this is a this school really is about to be a mess, and I'm just like. Yes. And we're going to find out, like, we're going to find out, is it really, like, what, 2%, 4%? We're going to find that out. Yeah, you know? I, that's something that I am worried about, too, especially with kids, because it's not just the air conditioning I'm more concerned about. is It's just the nature of children in general, especially young ones. It's just it's going to be hard for them to wear a mask, sit socially distanced for, like, Eight hours a day? That that just seems like a nightmare scenario. And what like, about, like, really well, the other thing that I keep thinking, the other thing that scares the dickens out of me is going back to the Spanish flu, right? So there was a doctor in Kansas. His name was Loring Milner. Okay? He was running into the Spanish flu back in 15. Okay? And he would talk about uh, he was right in Harvard, I think it was, talking about, hey, there's houses that are dead. Like, I go up and there's, like, homes that there's nobody living in this house. Right? And so that was 15, okay? So it wasn't until, like, 17, 18 that the Spanish flu went crazy. Like, it got much more contagious much more crazy. So my thought is, what if we're not, like, like, what if we're at the beginning of this? Right? <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Like, nobody knows where we are in the cycle, and that's the worst part. So I agree with you. I think that the other thing about the COVID thing, and just like, I, I know I'm not as well versed in Spanish flu as you would be, but the the issue with the COVID stuff to me is just like the number of people who are now like COVID truthers, I guess is I don't even know what to call them. Oh like, my god. <laughs> you know. That's been more interesting to me because I've seen everything from like there I don't know if you've seen the the, the video of this this some woman she she bought like a generic Walmart mask, you know, the kind of has like the blue with like the you know, the basic lining and stuff like that. I know what she's gonna say. Yeah, she pulls it apart and said, this is the 5G, and the 5G is trying to take it. I was like, man, this is a cotton string. And I was just like, whatever people are starting to get online about COVID-19 is becoming real dangerous to me because I'm like, even if we treated it like a flu, right? So let's just say if you want to treat like a standard flu, there's a couple of things we all generally do when people have a general standard flu. Why don't we just at least do that much of it, right? Like, it's not about 5G taking you down or Bill Gates. It's like this. Treat it like you would a regular flu. If you feel it's not real, at least do that much. 
right? At least like clean, wash your hands, give us that much. And it's like, it's not even that. It's like, if you had the regular flu, would you be out coughing and sneezing? Would you be at Walmart fighting people? No, you would be at home. But, but see, that's the problem, right? I mean, that's the problem is, I mean, okay. So in my, in my family, all right, in my extended family, my mother's mother, well, no, my father's mother's mother, so my great-grandmother did not want people to go into Brunswick because Brunswick had the flu, right? So she was all, don't go into Brunswick, right? Well, but my other side of my family, yeah, that was in Germany, or that was you know, soldiers got that. Don't worry about it, right? And they were medical people. Like, my mother's parents were medical folks. So it's like we don't have in our culture this knowledge of a sickness like this. You know? Yeah. I mean, but, like, it's funny you say the flu. I have a friend who's one of these guys that, like, if he got a cut or something, oh, put some dirt on it, rub it off, whatever, you know. But he's got a reminder on his phone for the flu shot because somebody in his family died of the flu. You know? That, uh, the irony in all of this. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> crazy. Yeah, it's it's. I kind of want everyone to take like a timeout. Let's take like a two week timeout. Really reevaluate. Stop watching weird Facebook accounts and YouTube videos. Like, let's stop. Get some air. Let's really think about how we're gonna go about this because we got a lot of stuff going on at once. And it kind of just brought me back to like even while we're talking, which is I can. I'm saying this as a black person, like. There's the black community basically has like one of three paths that we're all on, but we kind of at least we're all in agreement about stuff, even if we don't really want to like talk about it. But I was like, man, I just want to know white people, man. It seems like they're going through a lot right now. Like they just like kind of all over the place. And I was like, is this just a lot for people to to process? Because it's not just like there's a pandemic. There's like you said, there's a lot of people questioning a lot of stuff they've learned about like not just like you said school-based things, but their way of living, we have a potentially a depression on our hands that might happen if we keep two or more quarters in the black, I mean, the red like this. So I, I, just, I get it. There's a lot going on, but like the stuff I'm seeing, this is not even like white people talking to black people necessarily, just I'm seeing in the, in, out in the field just of white people talking and dealing with other white people. I'm like, yeah, what's, what's going on here? Like this is I've never seen like this, and I was like, you know what? Maybe I'm just reading it to it wrong, which happens. That happens. But I was like, man, this we gotta we gotta I pull think, back a bit. I think one of the things that's that's happening is like there was a lot of I don't know what you want to call it, but there was a lot of. Um, I don't know what you would call it, but whatever it is that would cause somebody to think that uh, QAnon is where it's at. And so, like, the Washington Post is BS, but QAnon is where it's at, right? Right. <laughs> or, like, 
Like there's a lot of that clanking around in probably a lot of people's families, you know, but there's like an underlying condition that's that way. And I don't know what that is. I don't know. I honestly don't, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's different. I'm just like, yeah, what's going on? Are y'all okay? Like, and this, it wasn't even like in the joke. It was like, generally, like, are y'all okay? Because I can tell you right now, the first three days or so, like when George Floyd got killed, because I remember when he got killed and like, there was like a delay in how people received information. And then I think, cause he got killed like May 25th or like he got killed during the mid part of the week by like that Friday or Saturday, the entire yeah. collective black community in the U S like, I was about to cuss, like burn all of this down. So I get it. Sometimes like your community can really be on like on one accord. And it was like that for like a good five or six days. We were just like, Nah, just burning it all down. And then we kind of came back. We thought reevaluated things, but so that's why I brought that up. And I was like, and I don't. That's why I asked too. Do you see yourself as as a white person? Do you see yourself as a white person, or do other people see that? Because as black people, we typically see ourselves in in an overall in an overall plan. Like especially when big things are going on, we kind of like move and think collectively. Yeah. So I was like, well, maybe that doesn't happen, and I could be wrong on that one too. I so don't. I like, well. Okay. Well, I, you know, I am somebody who, I don't know if you know this about me. You might not, probably not. Uh, but I have a physical disability. Um, so I more or less see myself through that lens, if at all. Um, I've never met a white person that sees themselves as like that, that thinks like all oh, white people think this way. I don't know any white people that think white people think like this because, and the reason I know that is because when I say something like white people think this, right? My first thought that anybody throws at me is no, they don't. Right? Of course That's not, right. Ben. <laughs> but you know, like one of the things I think is really going on is with the with the COVID-19 and white people or some white people is I wonder if I wonder if these people not the you know I wonder if the given average white American understands what living with a chronic disease for the rest of your life for decades would be like and is that worth going down to the bar and getting a steak sandwich yeah. right <laughs> you see what i'm saying like i have friends that that are chronically ill that have to go on dialysis and have to do this and have to do that <laughs> you know so i i mean i've seen it i'm like so you're telling me all i got to do is sit at home and I don't have to, or like, what are, you know, be careful? <laughs> okay, I can do that. <laughs> I mean, you know, but I really kind of think like, I don't know, like, I look at like bungee jumping and think, like, why would you do that? If you've right. ever been to Shepherd Spinal Center, Nobody who's really been in Shepherd Spinal Center for real would ever go bungee jumping ever again. 
I'm telling you that right now. <laughs> nah, I just was like that. That's that's you know, and I, I don't even want to make a white stereotype, typical joke. But like, you know, that's some white people stuff. And I was like, I just can't, I can't do the bungee jumping. Like, do y'all enjoy it for me? But like, that's just a little too far. Like, well, but I wonder, I wonder if like, uh, you know, I wonder if the average American understands what going through dialysis or going through, you know, having a heart condition at 35 is, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, it's, but you're right. I mean, it's, I mean, I've seen some, I've seen some stuff on Facebook from members of my extended family that I'm just like, I don't know. <laughs> my honest reaction to it is, God help you. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Because it's not my family, but it's a collective of the people right now. We need to be all as one family. And I'm just like, okay, I, I'm concerned for people I'll never meet or ever know because I know, like, I'll never meet your extended family. I just won't, right? But I understand that's going to affect you, that you might affect someone else. And, you know what I'm saying? Like, that disease, we're really in a, in a disease of, like, I feel like anger and ignorance. And some days I don't know which is worse. And I don't we're in a mean, I mean, We're like in a disease of anger and ignorance. That's basically. an excellent thing. That's an excellent way to put that. Yeah. I mean, that's just my opinion. So no, it's now it's mine. <laughs> wow. Well, one of the things like that's been bugging me was, I mean, like you know, these anti-vax. To me, I look at it as like these, you know, these anti-vaccine people. To me, it's kind of the same deal. You know, like. Have you been to a graveyard and seen the graves prior to, say, 1950? There's a lot of children's graves prior to 1950. Yeah. And there's not anymore. <laughs> there's a reason for that. <laughs> right. I mean, I kind of wonder if, you know, maybe people thought they could buy their way out of it or, or I don't I don't you know I don't know it's kind of like I remember uh, 2008 before 2008 and I was writing on the signal then and I was covering I was this movie guy I was covering the films and I'd go to I'd go to the theater to watch a movie and then at night you would see these people going to these condos and they were younger than me and they were going to these condos you know and I asked this girl one time like what is that what are you doing like and she's like oh I live there and she's like oh yeah I'm I'm basically the like the bank was paying her to live there basically and like the you know and that didn't sound normal to me that 
a bank would pay you to live in a condo. And it turns right. out that was the 2008 crash. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like, I don't know, I feel like this is going to be more sudden. Is you it know? though? Because like like COVID nineteen, we had ample warning, ample ample preparation time, and we just a lot for a bunch of different reasons just did not take it serious. There's a book I read. There's a book I read. Um, I'm reading for the my podcast on the on the flu on the Spanish flu, right? And George Bush read it. Okay, and it's scary. This book is terrifying, okay? George Bush read this book and started a pandemic team, <laughs> okay? Because this book is terrifying. So George Bush would have handled this pandemic way differently because he was on board, you know? Like, he was he was on, on board with pandemics are real and they kill people. I just kind of wonder if maybe we, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't be getting a president who doesn't know <laughs> how to think or how to, how would you say that? About Bush? No, uh, Trump. Like I'm, I'm saying like the other 44 presidents would have looked at this problem and thought, this is terrible. We need to fix it. Uh, you know what? Everything about Trump, I just throw it out the book because I, this is honestly one of the few times in which I can say that we've, we've seen the limitation of this current administration. And I don't even mean with Trump, with this current administration of, and I want to offend your listeners. The government. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is across the board because some things are permanent, like he's done with the Senate. Uh, through the Senate, getting a lot of these judges who aren't, who have never, in some cases, never actually seen a case. His handling of like the hurricane, uh, Maria, and up to now, like we've just seen this entire administration is basically a failure of just due diligence. And it's really, it's generally frustrating because for somebody who's the president, somebody who says he's, when you're the president, you have access to the top people across the world, for the most part, who wants to work with the U.S. government. And for them to botch every single thing across the board, with the exception of the 2017 tax cut, which was still botched, I'm honestly just, like, surprised that people still rock with the candidate on that level. It, it's generally surprising. Um, and I was like, it, it just can't be that he just, he's a, like, you, you like the way he talks, so he's a straight shooter. Like, he has pretty much failed on everything. There's no job in America where you can fail for three consecutive years and still keep it. Like, zero. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. And I was like, one thing I was thinking was, if you're 20 years old today, like, all you've ever known is just craziness. Yeah, there was somebody I was talking to about this on Twitter. I think that as much as people decry the millennial generation of this, I think that there's general reason for the millennial generation and arguably some of Gen Z's to be 
upset with the way things are because, like you said, if you're a millennial, especially if you're an older one, like you said, you have – I'm going to add on to you have 9-11. You have the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. You have Katrina. You have the 2008 financial crash that basically goes on for like three years, which is something we don't talk about. Then you get you get this last three years of the Trump administration, and then you have the last ten weeks of America with plus COVID-19. You've basically been in crisis mode for the last, in some mode, once every three to four years. Uh, baby boomers are Generation X for the most part. Like, depending on where you are in the Gen X section, we'll be clear about that. Like, if you were a Gen X person who got left in the cities, you might have had something, you might have had a really bad run at it. But basically every person who was born after about 1945, especially if you're white, especially if you were able to get, like, the backing to live a middle-class lifestyle, you pretty much haven't had any real national traumas. Yes, there have been downturns in the market. Uh, some places like Detroit didn't come back. But for the most part, like, 90% of that just did not have that happen. You know, you well, one of the things, problem. like, that I – one of the things I really wonder about, like, I look at is, like – because I've been thinking a lot about this because of my podcast. If you look at, like, say, 1945 to 2001, literally to September 10th, 2001, I would say, honestly, that's kind of a golden age. Like, and yeah, okay, there were problems. Like, I, I've interviewed Vietnam vets that had terrible situations and, like, terrible lives after that. Or not. I interviewed a, a Vietnam vet who said, like, he listed out a day, an actual day that he remembered. And he said, every day after that is the best day of my life because nobody's been shooting at me ever since. And as long as nobody shoots at me, I'm having the best day of my life. <laughs> you know? But you're right. I mean, what's really crazy is, like, when you talk to some of these baby boomers about how they got different jobs, it's like, you can't do that now. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think it's part of the disconnect too. And and to be honest, like it's especially we're gonna be clear, the last twenty years, we're talking about two thousand to two thousand twenty. Mm hmm. It's on paper, it if for people who lived it, it feels as if nothing happened, but everything happened at the same time because those big incidents have a way, I think people don't talk about this enough, which is, like, the cognitive dissonance that comes from having, like, really traumatic events is super important. Um, because sometimes, like, people who are older millennials, they like, they know what 9-11 is like. Or if they got drafted, they know what it's like to go to Iraq and Afghanistan. Like, the, the younger millennials are the ones who are Gen Zs now who are, for the first time, experience, they got to see, like, secondhand how the – like the 2008 financial crisis or Katrina or these other things affected their parents or their grandparents or their brothers and sisters, but now they're starting to experience all these new things. And this is on top of something else that I think that we don't talk enough about, especially in, if we're going to do this millennials baby boomers conversation, which is uh, Cardi B had an Instagram post that I was really telling. She was just like, this is like the early days of the, the protest. And she was just like, for a decade now, I've seen a pe I've seen people die on the internet, and I'm just fed up with this. And it was something we don't think about often enough. Um, but 
Why don't? Because I'm going to put this in. So why don't you tell my listeners? Because some of them are older. Why don't you tell my listeners exactly who Cardi B was, or I'm sorry, is, and also what she might have meant by dying on the internet? Like, because I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. So Cardi B, rapper, entertainer, social media personality, reality star. She's probably the president of the United States in 20 years. Um, and I don't mean that's like ironic. I really honestly think Cardi B will probably be in political office in 20 years. Um, but general, like, pulse of the culture, she sits on the, the borderline of millennials and Gen Zs. She speaks to two audiences really well. She's bilingual, biracial, multi, you know, multicultural. Basically, I didn't know she was biracial. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So she speaks to, yeah. Um, her mom is Spanish. Her dad is black. So, huh. um, yeah, but yeah. she put on the post, um, and the post in particular on Instagram was just, again, uh, saying that for a decade now, she's seen people die on the Internet. And one of the things I think that's kind of lost in this conversation is that we talk a lot about young people, and we talk a lot about PTSD, and we talk a lot about, you know, soldiers from Iraq, but we have not talked about one of the reasons why so many, if the, the, the rough estimate on numbers is when it relates to the George Floyd protest was that, that first weekend or so, they estimated about forty percent of the people who were under twenty five who were out at the protest. And that's pretty much the youngest millennials like twenty four, twenty five now. But that's basically like all generation Z or even generation alpha if, if their parents brought them out to the protest. But that's a huge number of young people who are coming out. And I think that's something that when you combine everybody staying indoors for the pandemic, people being really scared, but that was like the perfect storm for kids to really get upset and really start showing out because for a decade now, we, we have since the iPhone, what is it? Uh, 3GS in 2010 or so. We've had yeah. really to record videos and upload them. So we literally have, I actually remember actually this even before that in 2009 when Oscar Grant got killed in the Oakland, um, uh, transit station by cops and it was filmed on camera and uploaded to YouTube then. The game has been changed, and we've never seen any of those killings by officers or any of those killings by people who've done unjustly see receive any type of any type of like actual law and order, any type of of justice, right? And so I think for right. a lot of like white people in particular, and particular, and also baby boomers too, there's something you will never understand, which is like what it's like to be to have someone that you know killed. Or brutalized on camera. Um, well, there's and, there was a fascinating. I hate to interrupt, but there was a fascinating no, thing I read. Um, I don't remember the name of the, the model of camera, okay, or the model yeah. of phone. But that you know, there was a phone that came out, and then after this phone came out, the number of Bigfoot sight, number of Bigfoot and UFO sightings went way down. And the number of police brutality stuff and stuff like that went way up. Right? Yeah. And it was because people now have this amazing phone and this amazing camera right in their pocket. <laughs> you know? I mean, you're, yeah. I, I'm actually writing on that now. And uh, I probably, it'll actually probably be out like this Tuesday or so for my newsletter. But um, that is one of the things I think is interesting, too, because I I wasn't alive. You weren't alive then. But I remember 
reading and hearing from older black people in particular talk about police brutality and talk about lynchings, right? And so this is, again, something I think your listeners may not really want to hear, but if you actually look at the literature and the discourse on lynchings, one of the biggest things is you always hear people who who are talking about anti-lynching. Um, and since, like, not doing lynching, there are a lot of people who are lynching deniers, which is something we don't talk a lot about in the history books. But if you read a lot of op-eds or you read people's personal diaries of that time, there are some people who feel that, oh, the lynchings weren't that bad or there weren't that many lynchings. And the thing about lynchings is that's the confirmed information. And um, I'm doing a piece right now about the civil rights movement and lynchings and police killings. And one of the things is, especially in, in regards to John Lewis, and it's also going to circle back to Cardi B's post, one of the things, and it, this will actually be out tonight, so I don't know when this episode will be out, but it will be out tonight. What is today, the July the 26th? 26th. Yeah, so tonight, the 26th, my yeah. we'll be touching on this. But one of the things we don't talk about with Selma or John Lewis and the Civil Rights Movement is the role of police brutality is actually pretty effervescent. We, yes, we see the videos. We know that a lot of officers in the South, particularly Alabama, Mississippi, uh, you know, North Carolina were really like harassing protesters, harassing students. We know that they were doing that. But one of the things we don't talk about is, that, and I had to do my research on this as well, the thing that actually brought the impetus for the Selma Bridge itself was the killing of an unarmed black man that same year in Selma. And like, while that didn't get national news, that was the actual impetus for more of the activists on the ground to even start marching and go to the bridge in the first place. Because that killing happened in February, and it prompted the local black community to actually go out and march that march. And it's like it's like that kind of disconnect from, like, the history of police brutality with black people who said pretty much unequivocally since at least the end of the Civil War. And the only way we know this is because black press at the time or black universities kept records of these things. Police brutality has been pretty rampant within the black community. And so now we just had the next logical step, which is people having cell phones and documenting it. And like people who are, are lynching deniers, we have this new wave of people who are also police brutality deniers or people who take footage, alter, or they see a, a, a footage from, like, their perspective. Um, and I think George Floyd was, like, the best case scenario because that's one of the things where that entire scenario was caught with no additional edits. That entire scenario was caught on multiple people's cameras and you still have people denying that he died. You still have people saying that, well, you know, it wasn't that bad. He could have got up. Or, you know, um, this is all a hoax. Or the officer was still like, like, see, so the black experience of that particular part about police brutality is just being documented now. And even still, we're having the same issues 100 years later. And what I'm really concerned about is that I hope we don't start entering a new phase of America that's closer to the 1910s and 1920s, which a lot of people, particularly of like the VC crowd, the entrepreneurial crowd, love to talk about how great the 1920s was, how much innovation happened. But if you were black, the 1920s was awful. And so, right. And so, I think I don't want to get to that point because I started. I say that in relation to, like we said, the history of lynchings and police brutality in America, but also. This thing that also happened, like you mentioned before, like with, uh, well, I don't know if you mentioned before, and I might even listen to somebody else's podcast before I talk to you, um, but just Woodrow Wilson, a pretty yeah. known racist. Woodrow Wilson played Birth of a Nation. That Birth of a Nation film is based on a book called The Klansman, which came out in 1905. That book well, became the, a, yeah. 
Yes. Right. And the thing that, I mean, I'm with you because I'm, look, one of the things that were, that I'm concerned about as like a white person, but as also as somebody who is, has a deep understanding of history is like, okay, what if you go back and we go and we look at, you know, all these people in, in these multiracial relationships, okay? Well, what happens if so, say like you, say like you're a white guy, right? And you get with this, I don't know, Hispanic girl or a black girl or whatever and you'll have kids. And your people out, out in the rural areas or whatever, they don't, they don't like her that much. And so that kid doesn't get around those people. And so over time, like the families separate, which over time even further, the genetics separate. You know? Yeah. That's what we're, like, we become two different people. Like biologically or genetically. We, we become like urban people and, and rural people. That really bothers me. Or like what happens if, so what happens if out of this with the, everybody working from home, what about the people who can't, you know? What about the jobs that you can't do at home? Right? What's going to happen to them? Yeah, I uh, I thought about that with people, (laughs) like, that's a different conversation. I think it's one worth having, which is just what, What's going to be the shift for people who are caught up in this next wave of what the the economic cycle is going to look like and what the next revolution is going to look like? For a lot of people, and this is something I, I'm just way too invested in BC and Silicon Valley Twitter right now, but a lot of them are, are heralding like the, the, the new AI generation or the new information or machine learning age, right? And they talk about how many things changed when we went from agrarian to uh, you know, a factory-based economy, then from a factory-based economy to, you know, a, a service base and a service base to, like, a clerical base. And one of the things they love talking about is, like, look how much more efficiency, look how much the economy is growing, how much jobs grow and all that. What happens, they don't like to mention, is that that job growth typically happens with the next preceding generation, but the generation even after that one is the one that truly gains. So, the baby boomers are like the rare exception because so much money was in, like put into them, but typically the generation afterwards is the one that does better. Like, so the right. millennials were me and you said that we are the byproduct of the baby boomers, but more important, or some Gen X who have their kids young, but all the economic gains that they had. So we are essentially the byproduct of that. So that's why we're in in some regards much better than our parents. What, this weird thing you're talking about, though, is that our kids will probably not have that because of all the things going on. Plus, like like you said, like the way we actually go about business in our economy is changing in a way that hasn't changed really for 60 years. Everything we've done for the last 60 years in the economy has essentially been a series of ad- adding and subtracting things that already exist. Factories already exist. They just subtracted in the U.S. They went overseas. Computers have existed for at least 60 years, right? We've added more computers. We've added more computing power. We've added more computers that are in your pocket. But for the most part, mm-hmm. a computer exists, right? And so that clerical job, just shift, it's, we still have secretaries, right? So, like, certain things didn't change. This next generation is probably going to be, like, when we went from agrarian to, like, industrial, where a lot of people are going to get left behind. 
I don't know if it's going to happen all at once or is it, or if it's going to be like a series of like tsunamis, like, and I don't know right. which one. Like is a series of waves. One. Yeah. So that, I don't even know which one yeah. is the better one to take. Would you take one giant crash where everything just jumps or would you want to take a wave of different things? So well, one thing I, I no, talked to this guy, well, I talked to this guy, like he, he's an economist. Uh, Jacob Edward King, Jacob Edward King is his name. Edwards King is his name. And on a podcast he did, he talks about how, no, one of a podcast, it was research I did because of a podcast. Like there was like a 10 year period where people have been leeching out of the workforce. You know, before the, the 2008 crash, there were all yeah. these people leeching out of the workforce. And one of the things I looked at with these people, with all these people working from home is, you think about all the people, you think about all the jobs that happen because somebody has to turn up to work, right? You think about, like, the barista, the also, like, the Uber driver, the taxi driver, but even, like, the the my friend who's in charge of uh, bus stops in Atlanta, right? Where does his job go if we're all going to work from home now? <laughs> You know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know, man. Right. Yeah, it is. It's a difficult topic because I'm with, I think the pandemic has shown us one thing in particular, which is that a lot of jobs that people think were, like, low-skilled. I'm, I'm doing air quotes. You can't see them. Um, or, like, minimal <laughs> effort or, like, no degree required. Or, like, the jobs – everyone's kind of looked down on, like, either jobs that are, like, very service-based or jobs you to work with your hands or things like that. But, like, that – to be honest, it's done to still be a part of our economy 100 years from now, Lord willing, if we still have an economy. Um, like, that's going to be around. Somebody's going – it won't be robots taking up your trash. Somebody's going to clean – it's not going to be – and I say that because the way human beings in our society is structured right now, AI, machine learning, and just robotics will advance in some things really far, but a lot of stuff, it still requires, like, human intervention. And so we got to start thinking, like, there's a certain segment of our population that's still going to be doing something that requires working with their hands and working with other people. So we should just start figuring out what happens to the rest of the people that, that, that that's not an issue for. So so think about the rest of the people that, that can't, uh, basically, that are, like, not employable is what you're saying. Not, it's not not employable. Um it's a different way of looking at it because, all right, so like you said, like the delivery driver. Let's just say hypothetically Elon Musk is our, the, the world leader now. He he runs the world and everybody's, you know, in the Elon Musk, like, in the Elon Musk future of everything, right? Where robots uh-huh. are delivering things, drones are delivering things. There's no crime and violence. Everything's just super efficient with robots, AI, and software. Okay. There's a certain level of things that's still going to probably exist, but that that will still have a lot of AI and tech inventions that will improve things that still exist. So I'm thinking about stuff like caregivers, nurses, um, mothers with mothers and fathers with young children, people that that's something that really like, especially like learning and, and having to deal with the medical field or young children, that's still going to be a very human intensive thing, right? Um, like even with the robotics and all that, that's still going to be human because like humans could just do stupid stuff that just a machine wouldn't really compute at this point. 
the other one is this issue of like our environment, which is I think the low hanging fruit of this, and then our infrastructure. Um, mm-hmm. In America, in particular, we've overdeveloped with suburbs and highways. What that's done is, and this is something. This is a, a darker conversation. I don't even want to go into that part of it, but. Um, we essentially have overdeveloped with the wrong types of material, with the wrong types of living. So a lot of our resources we just don't have in the future. So what you'll probably see is, like, people working in the green space, working in the recycling space, working in the infrastructure space alongside AI and robotic technology because we've realized 50 years from now, like, the same way we know now 50 years later, like, building highways wasn't really a good idea. Building a bunch of parking lots was also not a good idea for environment. Or, like, people – uh, 70 years ago, thought smoking was okay to do in a doctor's office, right? So there's certain things we know now that <laughs> we're going to start working on then. So I think that's why I think if we're reskilling people, I think that's one thing. But I think it should be a phase-in thing where people are out of work now. Just go straight old-school New Deal style. But, like, an actual New Deal that works for everyone because black people are excluded from the New Deal. But, like, the New Deal is like this. All right, with the, the money and the resource that we have now, we're thinking what does America look like in – uh, 2120. Let's start like revamping that. All right, so we know we're going to still need an environment. We're gonna, okay, let's start getting people to people who aren't working right now. Let's start to see if they can do basic stuff like let's do environmental cleanups, hazardous spillover, water. You know, checking the water, checking the soil. We'll be able to grow crops like stuff that we already do now. The technology that already exists, putting those people to work to get us through to that transitionary period. Because as more people get laid off or jobs are outsourced or something like that, at least give them something to do now to prepare for the next phase of America, which actually I think for me is like the low hanging fruit for either political party right now. It's just like, all right, for the next 20 years, we're just going to reskill and just work on America from like the ground up literally. I wonder if that, I wonder if the next phase is coming. Like, I wonder if the next phase is like, I wonder, honestly, if the next phase is, like, a year from now. Like, seriously, like, because if we're still doing this in a few months, okay, there's going to be a lot of stuff that's just not going to go anymore. You know? Yeah. Like, it's going to be, like, think about, I don't know, like, think about, like, Shopping or, uh, what's another one? Um, restaurants. Yeah. Like, really and truly, if you start getting children sick in a school in, in September and August, in the day and age of Twitter and Instagram and all like that, um, I guarantee you, you're gonna start seeing people pull kids out of school. Yeah, you know? that's probably gonna happen. Like, I like, I don't see any school <laughs> making it through the whole year. Of everybody going to school. I just, I, I, I'm not a gamble man, but if I were, I would bet that like no school is gonna be open the whole year. I gotta tell you, I, I, I gotta wonder what the hell they're thinking. <laughs> but, um, hmm. So you'd said black people were excluded from the New Deal. Yeah. Was that really? This I is really did not know that. Yeah. I did not know that. Well, so this is actually something I'm writing on too about how black people went from 
Republicans to Democrats, and I think that this is also part of it. So FDR in particular was a a Democrat. The Democrats at that point in the 1930s had already slowly started losing some of their white base because of we don't we think of black history as basically only slaves in the civil rights movement. But that during that period too, like I told you before, the twenties were really awful for black people. There was a bigger push for black people during the nineteen tens and twenties in particular to uh do things such as anti lynching laws. Uh, and then there's certain people who were starting to make uh, appeals to the presidents about how to protect black people. And so that's slowly happening. But both political parties and most part weren't really best with black people. And so when the New Deal comes along, what happens that was really interesting is that the Republican Party at that point just had really abandoned the black vote by then, by like 1930, for the most part. And also, they allowed the state to use, under the guise of state rights, the ability to locally control and prohibit black men from voting. So that actually turned a lot of black people off, but they were still staying with the party for a bit. When FDR comes along, he used his position as a New York Democrat, which at that point were like the more... I don't even want to call them conservative, but they were what we consider Republicans of today. Um, they FDR took a couple black people um, and put them in like some government positions that really had no power, but they were symbolic, kind of like what Trump has done with the Trump administration. Um, okay. Having you know, and then one of the things was FDR was saying one of his big appeals was that. Um, he took some of the black people who could vote, though, in the North, because we forget about this, like, black people in the North can vote, right? So after the, uh-huh. uh, so, like, those like those few black people in the North who could vote, they, a lot of them, um, the second go-around for FDR voted more, because FDR was like, all right, I'm going to build more things in, across the country, including I'm going to give black people a few things. So I'm going to give black people a few public housing projects. I'm going to give, uh, open up some schools. I'm going to open up, um, I'm going to pave roads. I'm going to, like, put some more housing in places and so that got enough of black people to actually come out and start supporting democrats the second and third time around for fdr which at that point was like like black people as a whole like what are you doing voting for democrats but fdr started giving them things but what they didn't say was that black men were essentially excluded from the gi bill which was all the, the soldiers who came back that was what actually allowed the american middle class to flourish which was um so by the time like FDR is doing this, the so black people don't get the GI Bill, but black people, in some cases, FDR have minority quotas on certain building projects, particularly in the North, where they can work on some construction sites, get some wages, and start feeding their families, right? This is the Depression. Uh, World War II is about to start happening. So this works for some black men in the North and their families. So that works well. That works enough where black people say, okay, we'll, we'll keep voting, and eventually maybe we'll get some from FDR. But um, public housing, even when they were building those buildings, they had segregated housing. Like the first black public housing project opened in Atlanta five years after the first one did in the nation, also in Atlanta, but it was solely for black people. Uh, but it was like substandard, not as good as the white counterparts. And so most of the New Deal programs that were exclusively for white families in white ne- neighborhoods and communities. And so then when you get to Eisenhower in the 50s, he essentially doubles down on this, and this is kind of how the baby boomers really grow, is the Federal Highway Act. Uh, I think in 1953, he allows the states now, which have already started to get things going again from the the, uh, the New Deal and things like that. But the 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 country's starting to get back on the in the right shape, and we also have an abundance of supplies from the war. If, um, so Eisenhower allows for federal highway act, and he allows local control. That local control then 
builds highways to most black neighborhoods in America. So what happens is like, especially if this was almost exclusively done in the South, but they explicitly um, would take the highway development, like if you get Atlanta, Atlanta looks really weird as the cities because I-285 is like a, a circle. So you have um, on the south southern end of the city, you have these two highways that go straight, uh, that goes horizontal and vertical. At 75-85, which cuts through the entire north to south um, portion of the city of Atlanta, and then I-20 east to west, which goes across the east to west portion of Atlanta. Those were where every single black neighborhood or black business district was in the city of Atlanta. But Atlanta's not different. Greenwood, Oklahoma, which is where the Tulsa race riot happens. One thing we don't talk about with that, that happened there as well. That neighborhood was nowhere as great as Black Wall Street, but it was coming back like 30 years later after the, the destruction. But those highways purposely destroyed all that remains of the Greenwood district. That happened in every single black city in the South. And so FDR not really giving black people anything with the New Deal. He excluded them for some things in the New Deal. And then the one-two punch later on of, of the Federal Highway Act essentially built upon a legacy of, like, black crime and poverty, things like that, that would never really be changed until, like, really, like, 10 years ago, people were even considering, like, maybe we should do some different things. And so that's what I say. If we're going to do a new deal or a new version of the Federal Highway Act, it needs to be better than what's done before. It can't be exclusionary. It can't be purposely done to destroy one community or on the behest of like local planners, developers, or, or just people, this is just, I got to say the artwork, just people who are generally racist who are going to make assumptions that this is better because we said it's better. And so I think that that's the low hanging fruit on where to go with society. Like you said, if we're at the next phase now, we may be at the next phase. And so if we are at that next phase of America, then let's do it better than we've done before. Cause we know on, before it was done exclusionary on one end or purposeful on the other. And we can't do that again. We just can't. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. And I also kind of think like, I, I, I think I had known some of that about the depression, but I didn't, I mean, the new deal, but I didn't know all of it. Um, huh. Wow. Gee. Now, that, that was very uh, interesting to learn about. Yeah, well, it'll be up tonight or tomorrow, so I think it'll be interesting. But um, I think what you get, you throw me up a link or what? Are you tell me what it is off off the recording, and I'll uh, tell you what I'll do. I'll uh, throw it up on the the show notes. Yeah, most definitely. Or and you can also just follow me on Twitter. So I'm I'm always there, so I always post my stuff there. Yeah, um, it's just yeah. I, at I am King Williams on Twitter. So. I'll post yeah. that one. You can follow me there for it. Yeah. Well, I follow you already. Which is happening. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'd ask you to follow me, but all I really do is keep up with the news and occasionally tweet out stuff about sports. Oh, God. If you're a Atlanta sports uh, fan, you probably shouldn't. I am. It's just it's depressing, so I don't think you should. No, it's it, right. It's it's not good for your health. <laughs> Being an Atlanta sports fan. Um. Did you want to say anything else on the one of the hundred something most downloaded podcasts in the world? Uh, I would say two things. Uh, you know, one, thank you for having me, and two, if you guys haven't already followed me on Twitter, please like subscribe to my newsletter. It's I am King Williams dot Substack. So I am King Williams dot S U V S T A C K 
com. So ironkingwilliams.substack.com. That's all I got. Sub, Substack. Can you? Yeah. What is that? I don't know what that uh, is. Sub, oh, so Substack is a platform. It's a newsletter platform that a lot of journalists are jumping on, especially those who've lost their jobs at, uh, across the country. It's just a way for journalists or anyone, really, to, if you want to write, be a writer, a former writer, um, you can just essentially develop your own audience. And so it's a pretty good tool. Yeah. I like the PR people there. Uh, I like the company reps. So they just, they help you build it out. Um, so if you want to be somebody who writes or somebody who wants to publish podcasts, um, think about it like that. It's really for people who want yeah. to be a one-person media team. Um, they allow you to have where you can also set a price point. So unlike stuff like Patreon, which is Patreon fine. I have a Patreon as well, uh, where you, you know, you set up some content and people kind of donate. They, it's a little bit more integrated where if someone has an email account, they sign up or you send them an email or you send them like a private podcast link or private video link. Um, it's like a respectable version of OnlyFans or writing is the best way to describe it. So, um, it's pretty, cool. pretty, yeah, pretty good. So, I mean, I'm gonna give them a shout out to Substack is pretty good people over there. 